0: there. I'm Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition, and welcome back to another episode of The Naked Pravda. Earlier this week, the European Union passed a landmark agreement banning most Russian oil imports into the region by the end of the year, though the embargo features a temporary exemption for imports delivered by pipeline in order to overcome opposition from landlocked Hungary. In late May, the U.S. Treasury declined to extend a license that allowed Russia to make payments on its sovereign debt to U.S. holders, possibly accelerating the prospect of Russia finally defaulting on its government debt. To discuss these major developments and more happening in the sanctions campaign against Russia in response to its invasion of Ukraine, the Naked Pravda welcomed back Dr. Maria Shagana, a political risk analyst and sanctions expert who works as a Diamond Brown Research Fellow for Economic Sanctions, Standards, and Strategy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. So let's jump into the interview. Russia's current account surplus. Please explain what that is, because I, I vaguely understand what that means. It's like something to do with the trade, I think. Is higher than ever. What's going on here? Because I, I was under the impression that the... Russian economy was supposed to be in the gutter now and that Russians are supposed to be trading with like bits of leaves or like bark or something like how is this how is the economy still standing what is this what's this news about the current account surplus mean
1: yeah as you said the Russian economy didn't crumble didn't collapse and that gives this false sense of stability something the Russian officials would be eager to underline that everything is fine right don't worry We can survive Western sanctions, even these unprecedented measures. And that comes from two factors here. First is damage control that was executed after sanctions kicked in in February this year. And it was rather skillful intervention by the central bank, uh, other officials who were quick because they were prepared for some of the measures. They were preparing for Fortress Russia strategy that wasn't unique. In this case, we're talking about introduction of obligation to, on the exporters um, to bring back a hard currency up to 80%. So they were forced to sell it back to the state. There are also strong capital controls and uh, foreign exchange uh, restrictions, so that tamed the capital outflow. And the second part of it is that we have a situation where imports collapse substantially, up to fifty percent. Some countries even seventy percent, like South Korea, Taiwan, who are responsible for all of this high tech stuff, like semiconductors, and even China, the the big uh, partner, strategic partner of Russia, we see that imports collapse by 25%. At the same time, Russia continues exporting hydrocarbons. So we have this very uneven situation where the Russian government is hoarding cash. It can be proud of this uh, (laughs) mountains of cash it's sitting on, but it can't spend it on anything. It can't buy things.
0: Is it using this cash to pay off the... To, to prolong the default? is that Does that play into that, that equation or is that something separate?
1: It's just because the, the imports collapse and you have a combination of sanctions export controls that just don't allow you to bring anything to Russia that is on the sanctions list or export controls, yeah. but also the disruption of supply chains. Some companies just are not willing to engage with Russia.
0: Right. But you said they have this mountain of cash. Is that what they're using to pay off the government debts to, to keep themselves out of default. So they are, is the cash coming in useful in that regard, or is it literally just piling up for no good reason?
1: Fortunately, because we had the general license from OFAC.
0: From the U.S. Treasury. Right. Yeah.
1: So they were, they were that allowed the Russian state to tap in into those frozen assets. Yeah. But now the policy has changed and the, the Russian officials are offering, we can pay you in rubles, this nice currency that we're trying to, to use. But that you know, um, they have used the the cash that they accumulated, which means they're willing to to play by the rules.
0: So they they can they can draw on these. They are they accumulating dollars with this current account surplus, or is it all rubles?
1: Right, no, rubles.
0: So in terms of the, you mentioned the central bank's interventions and the the buying of hard currency. That's all in rubles, or are they is is the central bank able to accrue foreign currency in that way? Like, can you explain? Like, what exactly is the the hard currency, eighty percent thing. Like, what is? How does that work in reality? What is that?
1: So before they they would get hard currency, meaning Western currency, the dollars, right? Something or the euros, because the contracts has changed after two thousand fourteen. And after this, uh, after February this year, the the exporters were forced to sell back hard currency back to the state and convert it into rubles. So that was the the, the deal uh, for the state.
0: In, in your view, has Western unity on sanctions against Russia, is it still growing? Is the coalition holding together? Or are you seeing cracks? Is it, have we already hit peak unity and, and what's ahead is now more, more fractious?
1: I think it depends on your expectations.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We did expect oil embargo uh, to be early May. And now we're, <laughs> we waited for, for months at least. That was widely discussed, and uh, the the unity, the the requirements on the unanimity, always always stretching the limits of what they can do. So this was the case recently with Hungary. Mm-hmm. So to now, with every hard hitting measures that is ahead of us, which is gas embargo in this case. It will be hard to to keep the unanimity and to bring everyone on board. Twenty seven veto member states, uh, veto powers. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the fact that the EU managed to um, to bring everyone together, even for this very hard-hitting measure, something that was unthinkable a couple of months ago, can you know can be a good sign for the, the union's agility, mm-hmm. that it's still able to push. And to find compromises, to level playing field across, across the, the member states, because it's very hard to, to impose a unanimous ban on, on every country because of the different exposure of each member states towards Russian hydro, hydro, hydrocarbons.
0: Is the divide within the European Union, as you see it, is it like mostly in terms of receptivity to imposing sanctions on Russia? Would you say that it's, is it more defined, is it more determined by economic necessity, like the countries that are hurt most by it are the least inclined to pursue that? Or is it like a question of political will? Or is it like a mix of this? Because I know that Hungary is, as I understand it, it's it's particularly vulnerable to, it, it needs, it's kind of, it relies on Russia for for um, oil more than say, I don't know, France maybe. But as I also understand it, Germany is quite reliant on Russian oil, but it seems like they're more kind of gung-ho about, or maybe that's not the right term, but they're, they're more willing to pursue these sanctions now. So in terms of how determinant sort of economic necessity and political will are, how, how would you sort of rate the two As factors in this.
1: This is something I actually worked on and there is also proper research on how to, you know, map all of this. Okay. And there is no clear cut here. Yeah. And you can't say that Eastern Europe is Russia hawkish full stop. We see Hungary, as you said, uh, something that this authoritarian ties binds the two countries together. So... This is something that the researchers analyzed from 2014, and the same pattern repeats this time as well. Countries like Poland and the Baltic States, despite their large exposure, to tourists and hydrocarbons also trade in general, they're willing to pay that price. Germany is obviously now the swing state that is being forced to change. Um, and uh, there is also a political component that uh, is, uh, well, needs to be changed. And also the international criticism that Germany is now facing. Mm-hmm. So it's always a combination of, of both okay. of political and then economic. It's not really, it's hard to, to draw one line. I and see, say. I see.
0: Is it your view that Germany has swung? definitively toward the i mean i don't know if hawkish is the right word but like they're they're now in the camp of let's go sanctions like all the way let's 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 win this this uh, economic war or whatever or is that a temporary thing and once the costs are more felt by the german public it's it's possible that it'll swing back and they'll say, okay, you know, this is, we've we've done enough here.
1: I don't think we're there yet that Germany joined the Polish camp, for example. Okay. I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, there is definitely uh, internal pressure from some parties. Also, the the general population is more hawkish or more definitive on delivering weapons. It's not just sanctions, right? Where Germany is hesitant. Yeah, but the government, this is the key to the this public-private divide is also there, the The government is very reluctant. And whether it's SPD mm-hmm. could also play a role, a party that is, you know, responsible for this whole Ostpolitik, new Eastern policy towards Russia since the 70s, also plays a role. Mm-hmm. But the amount of international pressure that Germany is now facing is sort of pushing Germany towards where it maybe should be <laughs> in line with everyone. Mm-hmm else.
0: What about in terms of the, the looming food crisis or the potential food crisis? Is that entirely the result of Russia occupying Ukrainian farmlands and blockading Ukrainian shipyards and ports? In terms of all the factors of the that, that put the global food supply at risk, where does Russian military, direct military action in Ukraine play a role and where does where do, where do economic sanctions factor in?
1: The major impact doesn't come from sanctions necessarily because agricultural food is usually excluded. This is this whole concept of smart sanctions that you do not target right. food, medicals, and anything like this that is needed mm. for humanitarian assistance. But we are in a very tricky situation where we have disruption of supply chains, we have blockade of Black Sea ports, And we have two countries that are responsible for 30% of wheat exports to the global South and both are not being able to to do so. And Russia is also blocking some of its internal uh, products to ship abroad, which is only aggravating the problem.
0: I recently spoke to Emily Holland, who's at the US Naval War College, and she's been writing and talking on podcasts recently about the risks that wealthy nations, basically about the trade offs inherent in boycotting Russian energy, and the risk that wealthy nations will basically buy up the higher price fuel, crowding out poorer nations, effect- effectively passing on, I mean, inadvertently passing on the costs of this policy of, of restricting Russian energy exports, while sustaining their own kind of high levels of consumption of oil and gas, right? The idea being that for instance, here in the United States, our gas prices have gone up, but you know the the political leadership is essentially saying like it's the message just not stop driving your car. <laughs> it's like we we'll, we're gonna get through this, maybe there'll be some subsidies here and there, like you know American way of life will go will will thrive, and by doing that, somebody out in Pakistan maybe like won't be able to buy their heating oil like come winter or something like that. Is that something, that is that a phenomenon that you see happening or is that, is that not how you would describe it? And do you see, just sort of generally, this is something it seems to me that the Russian leadership is sort of hoping for and counting on, that, that uh, the West is essentially leading this, this economic sanction push against Russia. And I mean, the narrative is that the world is against Russia. The sanctions are, as far as I understand it, really led by Western powers and to some degree, some Asian powers too but that there, there are costs to this, obviously, and the West isn't necessarily going to show... The, you know, the West will pay a higher price for the things that it consumes, but that has consequences for people in the global South that aren't necessarily party to this whole conflict, not directly anyway, and that they'll be they'll be given costs, essentially, that as a result of this, and that could potentially turn opinion against the West, possibly. Now, that's not an ethical judgment. It's just sort of the way that the economics and the politics will shake out. What's your assessment of that sort of story?
1: Uh, I'll, I'll come back to, to your US example. And having moved to Berlin today, I just discovered because of the rise in energy prices, they slashed the a ticket for public transportation to incentivize everyone to take public trams and buses. I see. Well, <laughs> we have not.
0: We have not done that in the United
1: States. <laughs> <laughs> this is something you know to think about, and also about uh-huh. your domestic resilience and uh, energy efficiency. Because Ukraine's definitely been on a quiet journey to improve it, but uh, having moved in the Berlin apartment is quite chilly here. <laughs> so, uh-huh. you know, to increase energy efficiency would also be, be good here as well. In terms of, uh, I would say in a way, because we're in this unprecedented crisis situation, Russia is also paying the price in terms of oil discounts. So countries like India are ramping up, or India and China are ramping up Russian oil at $35 discount, which is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. So perhaps they can, you know, use it then better locally allocated. It. it is true that in this case, ordinary Russians and the countries from the global South will be hit the most. Also, this brings us back to the uh, food crisis. But in this situation, um, as I would always indicate, this is existential versus economic costs for Ukrainians. They will face a very cold winter, I mean, physically, because uh, we don't know what will happen with the heating in Ukraine. So. In From a Ukrainian perspective, the, the fact that some countries are disputing, you know, things that happened in Bucha and so on, or are not joining the sanctions regimes. Sometimes is seen um, that, you know, you're not part of this game. You don't think that might affect you. But I think now we need to understand that this is, the war in Ukraine is much larger than, you know, something happening in Eastern Europe that will Go beyond economic costs, and it will go to international rules and laws. Some countries, like Taiwan, is is also on the threat
0: here. It sounds as though there will indeed be costs for the global south, and it's just a, it's it's it'll be sort of a question for you know future historians as to how they how they handle that, right? I mean, that whether they kind of whether they interpret it as as evidence of our shared humanity, or whether they say. Well, hold on, Western countries, like stop stop making us pay more for things because you're boycotting stuff.
1: Well, some countries are buying Russian propaganda on this. Mm-hmm. African countries, Southeast Asia, and they could potentially be the countries through which uh, Russia either can circumvent sanctions, like, you know, getting semiconductors from, let's say, Malaysia or Indonesia for Russia. And they would say, well... We don't care, largely speaking, because the the war in Ukraine is too far from us and we're not part of it. We're sort of neutral on it. Yeah. But I think it's important to, to understand as you say the supply chains, the whole um, reverberations will be hit on the other side of the world as well, mm-hmm. whether you want it on or not. The other I think development here that so far has been felt within the EU but also transatlantically, that the understanding of a share of burden sharing has been stepped up. Mm-hmm. So the US is very keen on, you know, providing more energy towards Europe because of its high reliance on hydrocarbons. The EU within itself is willing to step into countries who, you know, too dependent and so or don't have access to to sea, like Hungary. So the understanding of this burden sharing, whether it will reach this international level and, you know, go to the global South and they say, we need to also chip in for those countries when it comes to export of wheat, for example, in Africa or in Egypt, who will be hit the most, Indonesia as well. That's a big question mark. Um, I don't have an exact answer how much willingness the Europeans were, the, the Americans, so have to, to pay for for those countries.
0: Uh-huh. What about impact on um on like green green agenda, green reform, you know, like um I I I've seen some people say that this is like this is going to be great because it's going to really stimulate the trans the needed transition to green sources of of energy because they're going to have to break away from Russia. And I've seen other people say like this is this is a nightmare for the green agenda. Now you've got the US is Biden's like not even talking about the environment anymore. It's just, he's just—he's just going to people. It's basically like drill, drill, drill. We've got to like you know supplement what we're losing from Russia now. So, what's your impression of the immediate and long term impact on uh, on the environmental? needs of the planet yeah
1: I think short term we need to acknowledge that we're going back you know in terms of development we're resourcing more often to coal something that we thought will phase out by now and will rely to gas as was seen from Germany as this bridge to the renewable future now we're going back one step um back in this direction mm-hmm. um, but this is the short term right because we need to To impose those hard hitting measures, you need some short-term supplies of oil and gas, and this is something that can be done with those measures that were supposed not not to be part of this discussion anymore as a green transition. But the long-term, this is something that I think will go even faster than it was projected. So now the EU is talking as part of its repower EU plan, is talking to end, not just to reduce or, you know somehow minimize Russian fuels by the end of 2027. Mm -hmm. That is, I would say, quite revolutionary if it manages to do so by that time, but also politically, Russia will no longer be this energy bridge, something that it has used for a long time historically as its foundation to build relations to the Europeans. And the the very fabric of this relationship between Russia and the EU will no longer be there. And if we go back after starting with decarbonization, uh, slated for 2030, 2050, depending on the progress here, Russia will not find its place here because Moscow will need access to technology, advanced technology in this case, for something that even Western countries doesn't necessarily have. And capital, because it's very capital intensive to, to build those things. Mm-hmm. So in this case, its place is no longer with the euro. It's somewhere with Asia, perhaps resorting to Chinese funders, um, to other technology of lesser standards. But that is a very different uh, you know, economic structure that Russia will have to go through, and this is what the Central Bank of Russia said, we will go through structural transformation and reverse industrialization. So <laughs> It will be interesting.
0: But so you, you see evidence that, that the EU, and I don't know about the United States in this case, but the EU is, is they'll accelerate their long-term transition to green energies as a result of this? That'll, I think so. Have leaders actually change the timeline for this officially or is it this is just like an opportunity at this point
1: from what i understood so the timeline was a bit changed So the before the war was phasing out russian fossil fuels by 2030 Mm -hmm. the repower eu plan tells us we will end it by 2027
0: and replace it with green energy
1: with green energy, but also with other suppliers, not necessarily green, but, um, at this point Mm -hmm. LNG is still factored in. So I think. Diversifying away from Russia is probably a stronger component here at the moment. Uh, whether everything will be green, um, we'll have to we'll have to see. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, after twenty fifty, where it was uh, supposed to kick in this uh, fit fifty five project as well, this is where Russia won't find its place in Europe.
0: Right. So right, right. So do you think that the? I mean, it's, I suppose that this was this is always a long ways coming and politically speaking like russia russia's turn to the east has been something that's been discussed for for years now but it sounds as though the war and the sanctions have made this like inevitable now it's not it's no longer just that putin's too nasty to be kind of to shake his hand for western leaders it's like the whole economy has to it, it literally has to just turn away from europe it's not going to have business there anymore And it seems like this is going to be, that's going to have profound, a profound impact on like Russian society and so on. It seems like, that seems like a pretty major thing to, to put it in these terms
1: well the, the previous pivots to asia were always propelled by the deteriorated relationship with the west yeah so it was always the idea okay we won't need you we have other countries meaning china in this case right so it was always the desire to play the two against each other now it has only one game in town and that's china maybe india yeah And learning from 2014, those countries will help, will mitigate some of it, but that help will not come come, uh, cheaply. Mm -hmm. And also they will try to capitalize on Russia's international isolations. We already see in the Chinese energy companies are uh, sweeping all of the assets left by Western companies, they're ramping up very cheap now, Russian oil. And that will uh, will we'll proceed to a certain extent, but whether they will be willing to, let's say, violate Western sanctions, uh, I'm not so certain. So the, the other solution for Russia here would be to team up with those sanctioned countries.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But this is a very bleak picture because you're teaming up with Iran, Venezuela, um, well, North Korea, <laughs> right? You have, not well, good friends uh, all around. Um right. But... This is the, the type of survival regime, mm-hmm. oh, and this is quite bleak for ordinary Russians, as you said.
0: You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we discussed the current state of economic sanctions against Russia and their global reverberations. You heard from Dr. Maria Shagana, a political risk analyst and sanctions expert who works as a Diamond Brown Research Fellow for economic sanctions, standards, and strategy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. The Naked Project is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English-language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Also, if you value medusa supporting whether in English or Russian, please consider making a donation at support.medusa.io. You could throw a little dash en if you want it in English. To help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help the most, but we will take whatever you can spare, of course. Thank you for listening and come back soon.